Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Coming up, officials are now suggesting we wait four months for the second COVID-19 vaccination. And how are you feeling about getting out? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Now they want Canadians to postpone their second COVID-19 vaccination shot for up to four months. And I get hell I said the wrong one, Will. I said the outtake. Oh, that's hilarious. That is, okay, let me, here's Scott Thompson. <laughs> He's going to kill me. <laughs> well, that's the first time we've done that. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, uh, I, I think I had the word hell in the intro. And Kurt read it and then said, oh, I can't say that on the radio. And then yelled to me and said, uh, Dad, can we say I said, okay, change it to heck. And then he sent me another version. And I sent you the first version. So he's going to be, uh, if you listen very carefully, you can hear my son swear on that. Uh, but he did edit himself halfway through. Oh, that's funny. All right. Uh, maybe I will send you the other one, Will, and you can, you can play it later on in the show. We'll that's if we have time. I know that's funny. Oh, as soon as I uh, as soon as I heard the second sentence there, I knew we were on the right the the wrong track. That was funny. Uh, clearly, uh, yeah. Let's move on. Uh, it's a good thing he didn't say something worse than what he did say. Uh, Lord knows what's going to happen during this show. We're certainly off on the right foot. Lots to talk about today in regard to the change of pace of vaccines and such. And uh, and you might remember we were having this question for a long time in regard to the second dose when Quebec uh, first started doing it way back when and holding back for three months. Uh, they hadn't, uh, and I'm guessing still to this point, haven't administered a second dose or hadn't uh, as of last week. I haven't got those uh, accurate numbers this week. But again, now many are following that lead uh, because we simply don't have the supply that we would like, uh, extending that uh, the, the time between the first and second doses uh, by up to four months. Also, AstraZeneca and uh, that's not rec- uh, being recommended for those over 65, so it looks like uh, 60 to 64-year-olds will uh, be in line for that. For a little clarification on all of this, let's bring in Dr. Anna Banerjee, uh, CPD, Chair for Indigenous and Refugee Health and Associate Professor in Pediatrics at the Dalat Lana School of Public Health, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm doing well. Thank you for inviting me. So obviously, doctor, a lot of chatter in the last uh, several weeks in regard to that second dose. Uh, Health Canada saying do this. Uh, others, as research, I guess, slowly starts to trickle out. We we find out more and more about this and the effectiveness of these vaccines. Your thoughts on uh, extending that second dose to to as much as four months? I guess. I think that it's a, it is a safe option. Basically, when you have these vaccines and they have their a very high effectiveness on the first dose, what the second dose does is it increases the longevity. So it makes, you know, the the immunity last for a longer period of time. And for many vaccines, the, the wider you space it out, the longer the immunity is. So that's that's a basic principle for most vaccines. And so in this situation where we have a limited supply of vaccines, and the reason why they had uh, three or four weeks is because that's 
the way the studies were done. They didn't want to test it in four months because there was urgency. So, right. so there's no reason for us to think it wouldn't work. It's just that that's, they say three, four weeks because they tested it three, four weeks because they wanted to get this to market. And so, does, sorry, go ahead, continue. So, so basically, um, you know, would it work, uh, you know, being uh, extended? It should. There's no reason why it wouldn't. The other thing is if you don't have enough vaccines, if, you're, if your bottom line is trying to save lives, prevent hospitalizations, opening up the economy, you need to get as many vaccines into as many people as possible. So if you have a limited supply of Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, then to have that end goal of reducing deaths and hospitalization, it's better for you to give everyone uh, the, the first shot and have it like at 90-something percent effective rather than having half the population getting it and having it marginally higher. So it just makes a lot of sense to get the vaccines out to as many people as possible. Now, would this work with all vaccines, doctor, or is this just primarily for the Pfizer and Moderna, which are the newer type? Um, it should theoretically work with uh, the COVID vaccines. The Johnson vaccine, they say, is one dose. And maybe they're saying that, you know, one dose gives a good immunity, but you may need a booster dose anyway. Right. But they're not even having that second dose right now. So, but in general, as a principle, uh, you, know, it, you know, some vaccines you want to give uh, to build up the primary immunity, like, you know, for babies, two, four, six months. And then after that, you give it to them because... The, at the younger age, that's the highest time they have uh, a risk of exposure. Um, so you want to give it to them at that point. But here, you know, in general, the second dose is boosting and, and gives longevity, and it's a general principle. Now, uh, initially there was concern because the manufacturer in Health Canada had said to just follow the prescription. But again, as you as you pointed out, that's, you know, the testing that was done to that point. It's been it's being continually tested all the time. Uh, now, the National Advisory uh, Council has said, let's go with uh, waiting four months. Will we see Health Canada follow suit or will, will they bother with this discussion? Well, I, I think different provinces are doing different things. And uh, I think that there's enough a lot of it depends on the vaccine supply. Yeah. If we get a whole bunch of supply, then we don't need to extend it. Yeah. But if we have a limited amount of supply, it's better to give it all out than hold it back. And if the wait is only like three, four weeks, then that's great. But if it's longer than that, then it's not the end of the world. It, it's, it's better. It's much better. So I think that in general, it's being done province by province. And we know that, um, you know, Quebec has, has been uh, doing this from the beginning. And then yeah. now BC has announced that they're going to extend it out up to four months. And I think other provinces are going to come along, especially since NACI has now said you can wait uh, up to four months based on the evolving evidence. Um, AstraZeneca now approved here, and um, again, Health Canada said for everybody now, obviously, and this is, again, because it's not safe, it's just because there's lack of information because this was brought out so so uh, quickly and efficiently. Uh, now they're saying AstraZeneca under uh, 65. Your thoughts on that? Uh, and, and again, pretty much the same predicament. We're waiting for, I'm guessing, more research, more data to come in as time goes on. 
So, so there are studies around the world, in the real world, that show that AstraZeneca vaccine is as effective as Moderna and Pfizer in, in, you know, in older populations. And so they originally said you couldn't give it in that population because there wasn't enough evidence. But now there's a lot more real-life evidence. And you've got many countries, especially in Europe, who are giving the AstraZeneca vaccine to, um, uh, to, to older people. To me, the big issue is the speed at where, what we're getting the vaccines out. And to me, I'm not very happy with the rate. I mean, uh, many parts, for example, in Ontario, like why aren't we prepared and why aren't we getting the vaccines out? If they choose to give the um, AstraZeneca vaccine only to people less than 65 and only give the Pfizer Moderna to older people, that's fine if there's enough. But I think what we need to do is get those vaccines into people's arms. If there aren't enough Moderna, Pfizer vaccines, then go to AstraZeneca, you know, because there is enough real-world evidence that it does work. And, you know, Health Canada has approved it for that reason. And so the, the problem is that as we're taking time bickering over some of the minor details, we're not taking the time to put the vaccines into people's arms. You know, we had... Uh, you know, four weeks or so where we didn't have a lot of vaccines and now they're coming in, why weren't we prepared? Why weren't, why are we having discussions now with pharmacies and family doctors? Like, why wasn't that done beforehand? And so that now that the large amounts of vaccines that are coming can be, you know, given to to every group. Like, we shouldn't be, you know... You know, like I said, the micro-tiering that we're doing, you know, where, okay, policemen are above firemen that are above postal workers that are above grocery store workers and all that. Let's stop the argument. Let's get the vaccines in to everyone possible. Like, you know, maybe starting with big tiers, like, you know, definitely the elderly, because they're most likely to die, to take up hospitals, to be put in the ICU, get them vaccinated yesterday. Let's not wait another couple of weeks. Uh, and then, you know, basic, I, the way I would do it is basically anyone in the past uh, year who has been working as an essential worker who has put their life uh, at risk, you know, whether they're a grocery worker or police or whoever, they should be the next group or and, and people with underlying health conditions. And the rest of us who have stayed at home most of this time, we can wait. And it's probably not going to be a long wait because yeah. soon we're going to have a whole bunch of vaccines. Um, but, you know, wait another month, and then you get everyone else who wants the vaccine vaccinated. That's, but it should be done immediately. And I think for a lot of people I've spoken to, a lot of healthcare providers and friends and neighbors, they're very frustrated at the slow pace. And, and I think that's more of the issue now than, uh, you know, can AstraZeneca, should AstraZeneca be only given to 60 to 65-year-olds? I think when we're having such a narrow scope, we're missing opportunity to vaccinate as many people as we can. How can we be talking about slow pace, doctor, when we still have a relative shortage of vaccine? I mean, you know, Toronto, there's lots of areas in and around southern Ontario that have had max vaccination clinics ready to open up, but they just don't have the product. So other than the website and, and you know, certainly lacking in communication and in, in, in what's going to happen in, in the incoming weeks, we, we still relatively have a, we, we still have a shortage. Yeah, but, but with, during that time, the vaccines are coming. But we still don't have a website app. Like, why couldn't we have that prepared 
thinking, okay, we're going to go to the 80 above, you know, have that prepared beforehand. Why, you know, are, you know, why are the discussions happening now about pharmacies? Family doctors have not heard anything about this. And now, you know, it was Ontario that was going to uh, manage this, and now they've downloaded it to municipalities. So municipalities are now trying to figure out what to do. Like, why wasn't any of this done beforehand so that you can go? You can go and get people vaccinated as soon as the vaccines arrived. And, you know, and now with uh, us, you know, holding back the second dose, uh, not holding back the second dose of Pfizer, all of a sudden we have a lot more vaccine that we should be giving today to yeah. people who are at risk. And and that's how you get us out of this. That's how you get us out of uh, the lockdowns. That's how you get the seniors out. That's how you open up the economy by doing this as soon as possible. Every two, three-week delay is another two, three weeks that allows the variants to spread and for people to remain at risk and and end up in the hospital. So I don't feel that the urgency of this is is really being felt. I know that some municipalities are trying very hard to get things going, but... But where was the Ontario plan for the past month, knowing that these vaccines are coming? Um, again, I'm playing devil's advocate here, but isn't the difference here that we have a whole series of local health networks and uh, obviously those have their own situations in place? This is for a provincial uh, overall scenario. Um, but again, when are enough vaccines going to come in, do you think, that we'll all of a sudden be in a max vac- vaccination mode? How long do you think it is before well, we're at that point? We have 500,000 AstraZeneca vaccines come in, I believe, today. We have another 1.1 million to the end of March. We have uh, 440,000 doses of Pfizer coming in, I think, this week. Um, and, you know, uh, another couple of million coming in. So they're coming in by the millions now. And if we spread out the vaccines, so we shouldn't even have to spread them out if we start getting the vaccines. But, like, you know, so we should start using up the Pfizer vaccines that have been on hold for second doses right. to get people vaccinated. You know, why, you know, the the government of Ontario had, they're saying by the 15th, they're going to have this website for 80 and above. Why aren't we vaccinating them now? You know, so maybe some communities are, some regions are. Well, know, and that, let's be honest here, doctor. It's the regions in those hotspots, which are the ones that should be focused on anyway, no? Well, yeah, but why, as far as I know, why was it downloaded to the regions now? Like, why is it downloaded to the regions, or is it just the way a local health network system works? Like, that's but there's there's policies as far as like how like you know the government has this um, this one eight hundred number for eighty people eighty and above. That's that's provincial, right? But I were all the health units told that when the vaccines were coming a month ago that they were going to be responsible for administrating it because if they were then then i think that a lot of these health units would have had more time to prepare and get things ready now a lot of them are scrambling last minute no one knows what's going on i don't know any family doctors that know what's going on so it's the lack of transparency and the lack of communication and i think our vaccination process has been very slow for example you know, in Ontario, with the long-term care facilities, there was a three-week delay in getting, when the vaccines were there, the long-term care facility residents vaccinated. In that three-week delay, 
many, many people died. There were outbreaks and people died. If they had started vaccinating the residents like they should have three weeks before that, you would have saved lives. And it's the same now. Like, what are we waiting for? Wasn't that, again, an issue about moving the vaccine into the homes as opposed to coming to the actual places to do it? Like actual, there was, you know, so many designated spots that they had to come to as opposed to putting it into the homes due to the logistics. I think they were busy vaccinating uh, long-term, like, uh, workers, PSWs. Um, and they were putting their emphasis on that rather than putting the vaccine into the arms of the residents. Yeah, because and we couldn't at the beginning of all of this, uh, and we could remember we couldn't deliver it to the actual homes. It had to be so many designated sites and people rather than taking those people to those sites, they vaccinated the workers first because they couldn't transport it to the sites until a few weeks after. Isn't that accurate? Uh, you know, I, I, I think that if you have vaccine and you you are you don't need to, Finally, what they did is they went in to the long-term care facilities and then they vaccinated everyone, right? On site at the at the vaccine. Yeah, but that was after that was after the manufacturer said you could transport it. Remember, they weren't going to to actually deliver it until you could have those sixteen or whatever designated sites, and then from there it had to move out of those sites, and they weren't allowed to move that for the initial few weeks. You know, it, it, due to it logistics can take of the freezers, of the minus seventy, and it's good for a certain period of time. They yes, but that wasn't dis- that they wasn't found that wasn't fa- that wasn't found out till after the vaccine had arrived here. Isn't that accurate? I mean, it wasn't until a few weeks I, after I, I we think got that, the vaccine. That's in the product monogram, and that that they 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 it, again, we're talking about a race against time. You're talking about people in long-term care facilities that are sitting ducks for COVID, and you know, if you're trying to save people's lives, then you urgently get those. No, I understand, Anna, but, I, but from what I understand at the beginning of all of this, the issue was is that, that they could not be transported out of those sites into the homes because of the logistics in regard to freezing. Anyway, we're out of time. Dr. Anna okay. Banerjee has been with us. Uh, Dala Lana, School of Public Health and Associate Professor in Pediatrics. Thank you, doctor. Much appreciated. Here is today's daily commentary. Canada's National Advisory Committee on Immunization is now recommending provinces and territories extend the time between first and second COVID-19 vaccination doses to four months. The sole reason? Canada does not produce its own COVID-19 vaccine and our supply is weak at best. Why? Because a year ago, instead of ramping up domestic production like the UK and others did, as well as buying vaccine, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was working on a production deal with a Chinese company that fell through, thanks to another slap in the face from China. By this time, it was August before Justin Trudeau started buying the giant portfolio he constantly refers to, but won't fully arrive until much after other countries are vaccinated. At the same time, Canadian drug companies were banging on the Prime Minister's door saying, we can do this, and were ignored until just recently when Trudeau finally announced a production deal, albeit with a U.S. company, Novavax, which won't bear fruit until next year. Instead of talking about vaccine hesitancy, like the rest of the world, Canadians are trying to figure out how to squeeze an extra dose out of a vial and extend the time period between COVID-19 vaccination shots. That's not a success for Justin Trudeau. That's a failure. Today, 
end when mass vaccines finally do arrive. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on. And we've seen unprecedented uh, collaboration uh, between various uh, industry, education, companies and such throughout this global pandemic. And we have another example of that uh, with Johnson & Johnson and uh, Merck partnering to uh, exceed a goal of 100 million COVID-19 vaccination doses by June for the United States. Let's bring in Dr. Kerry Bowman, bioethicist with the University of Toronto and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, sure. Happy to do so, Scott. So how, first of all, uh, we've seen the speed in which this vaccination uh, was not only developed, but came to production and such, uh, with everybody collaborated and, uh, collaborating and working together, breaking down silos, all those great phrases. Uh, but we have here two companies coming together. How, how big a deal is this? Oh, I think it's huge. You, you know, I'm not an expert on pharmaceutical companies, but and maybe this has happened before, but if it has, I can't think of it and I'm not aware of it. Um, you know, it just shows how much can be done. I, you know, not only did, you know, we come up with a vaccine. I'm not going to say overnight because it wasn't overnight, but metaphorically it was overnight. You know, like normally timelines are so much longer. Um, so them merging together, you know, capacity just goes through the roof in terms of um, what they can actually do. And, you know, just before I came on with you, I was fishing around online to see what this means for Canada I don't, it's got to mean very good things, because if they go into mass production, it means more vaccines. I feel, in my opinion, and the opinion of many others, it's virtually a certainty that we will have that vaccine, Johnson & Johnson, um, very, very soon. And so this is just more good news. And will we see more of this type of collaboration on a a global perspective? Is Is this setting a precedence here? Yeah, I think it probably is. And, you know, we, the, the global challenge is nowhere near over because, you know, Canada's one story, but the rest of the world is another huge story. Now, I know some people roll their eyes and cringe and say this is no time to talk about all that, but it is because both ethically and epidemiologically, this is not over uh, until we get vaccines out to the rest of the world. Uh, that really has to happen. And um, when you start seeing these big merging conglomerate uh, think you know, productions and pharmaceutical companies coming together to do that, you realize how much potential there is for that. So I'm very much hoping that from a global point of view, this will really push things forward. And you know what? I think it will. From a layperson's perspective, what does this mean? What has happened here? We have two companies. Normally, companies are competing for uh, uh, for patents and or, uh, with patents and that sort of thing, and and in highly secret uh, research and development. What has happened here? You know, I'm not sure because these these are sort of corporate workings that I I personally wouldn't be aware of, but I have no doubt they both struck a deal. Uh, that is is beneficial to both. But look, that's fine. They're in the business of, you know, they're for profit. That's fine. Let them do it. Um, I, you know, whether they they sort of did so at a loss or not, I couldn't tell you. I, I'm hoping they didn't, because I think if they're going to do something as great as this, let's hope everybody's happy. Um, but, you know, as you said, you know, the, the, it, you see it in medical culture as well, not just pharmaceuticals. You know, sometimes people are competitive rather than looking at teams when it comes to research. And and what this pandemic is really doing is, is bringing more and more of us together to have a common goal. So that's all good news. 
And as you pointed out, uh, you know, as as much as we see vaccine nationalism now and people trying to, or, or leaders trying to vaccinate their own country, until we eradicate this globally, it, it's a problem. Well, it is, because what will happen? So let's imagine if, if, if we just carry on the way we are and, you know, we get so many people vaccinated in, in you know, Western Europe, Britain, uh, you know, North America, that type of thing. Um, the variants that we're hearing about will just keep on coming. Now, look, COVID is not going to go away. Every researcher says that. It's just too entrenched. And we now know it's it's not just in domestic species, but it's also in wild animals. So it's really not going to go away. But, you know, it can be controlled. And, and, you know, if the numbers come down in the developing world as well, the chances of these variants that keep coming at us will, will really diminish and we can really get things under control. Because, look, I don't want to be alarmist, but there's always a chance one of these variants is going to be far worse than anything we've seen so far. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it's always a possibility. And we don't want that to happen, quite obviously. Uh, obviously, with manufacturers and production, the more the merrier when it comes to a vaccine. The U.S. now, as a result of this, are speaking of having, uh, uh, pushing up, bumping up their uh, goals of vaccination. Now talking about June, July, they could be uh, finished and have all adults uh, vaccinated in the United States or those that want them as a result of these sort of uh, partnerships and such. Uh, this has to be good news for Canada. You, talk, you talked about earlier uh, how this affects Canada, but I'm guessing the faster the United States vaccinates its citizens, the faster we could possibly get extra vaccine shipments from the United States. Absolutely. Now, look, I, I haven't seen any contracts indicating that, but absolutely. And under this administration, things the, the compatibility level is so much better now yeah. that, you know, if, if they do reach their targets and they've got these mass productions going on, I would think uh, they, they certainly would be able to help us out. You know, there's been a lot of good news over the last week. Yes, we've had a slow rollout. I'm not going to suggest that isn't the problem. I feel very strongly about it. I think you had a guest just on. I didn't catch the interview uh, that was speaking about that as well. But, you know, spring is here and there's a lot more options that are opening up very quickly. Dr. Kerry Bowman with his bioethicist with the University of Toronto, Johnson & Johnson, and Mark teaming up uh, more and more of these global partnerships forming in the fight of uh, the global pandemic, COVID-19. Doctor, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Very well. Thank you, Scott. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario was originally expecting to offer a COVID-19 vaccine to anyone who wants one, starting with phase three in August. But that could be sped up thanks to shipments of the recently approved AstraZeneca vaccine arriving in Canada. And because a federal committee is advising intervals between first and second doses of Pfizer and Moderna vaccines could be extended to four months. We're recalibrating our timelines now. Health Minister Christine Elliott expects Ontario's vaccination timelines will be reduced over But I can't give you a specific date right now. She adds the government will share its plan imminently as it understands people are anxious to get the vaccine. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. 
Uh, many have talked about what life will be like post-COVID-19, uh, what the new sense of normal will be, if there is such a thing. And uh, for those of us that are working from home, uh, there's many that are saying, I don't want to go back. There's some that saying, I can't wait to go back. And no one's sure what it will look like once we do. Uh, an interesting uh, survey from uh, Nano's research, 64% of those in the downtown core in Toronto, uh, employees say they're comfortable with returning back to work. Let's bring in Nick Nano's chief data scientist and founder of Nano's research with us now. Nick, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well through all of this. I'm making by like everybody else. Yeah, I hear you. So are you surprised by this? Because it seemed uh, the, the first part of these uh, of this pandemic, we were there's a lot of fear, a lot of concern. Now it seems to be there's a little bit of optimism uh, with 64% of those in the downtown core in Toronto saying they're ready to go back. Yeah, I think in, in this new survey that we did for the Toronto Region Board of Trade, um, if this was like five months ago, I would have been completely shocked because we were kind of hot and heavy in the pandemic. But I think for many people it's been it's coming on a year uh you know the the system has been has been more resilient at responding to things seems to have things under control and as a result when we do that downtown survey uh, that worker worker survey of uh, people that work downtown in toronto about two out of every three are comfortable and only about about 15 percent are uncomfortable but you know by a margin of five to one folks are generally comfortable with uh working on location in the downtown core. How significant, you mentioned the one-year anniversary to this. Uh, you know, Next week for us, it's uh, week number 52 of doing this show at home. I remember we were halfway through March break before I joined the kids. Uh, how significant is that anniversary to us psychologically? I, you know, I think, I think it's very significant. It's kind of like, you remember like that Bill Murray movie with Groundhog Day? It's like yeah. getting up and it's the same thing over and over again. Yeah. You know, I think it's I think it's a bit like that, and the uh, and you know the fact that it's been a year is uh, is what I'll say a significant psychological hurdle. So it shouldn't be surprising that you know when when we ask those folks, you know, who are comfortable working downtown, it's it's because of stuff like they just like big cities, they live downtown, they feel it's safe, they don't really have any significant concerns, and that they're uh, they're comfortable. Now, does that mean that they're enthusiastic? No. But it does mean that they're at least comfortable from a safety perspective. Uh, what about, uh, you know, we've certainly heard, especially in the earlier days, mid-days of this pandemic, that uh, cities were taking a hit. I mean, whether it's office towers, you know, people are rethinking uh, what their template's going to be. A lot who are, you know, sitting in, in maybe six or 800 square foot condos are, are looking for a little bit more space. Do you think this will impact city dwelling in any way? Or is this just a, a thing and, and like everything, the, the, the mad attraction for the big city will always pull us back? Well, I think there is. Uh, so first of all, I think there will always be uh, an attraction to downtowns, not just in not just in Toronto, yeah. but in Hamilton, everywhere, uh, because downtowns are part of a community, and they're a thriving downtown is usually good news. Uh, but I think it, it's probably realistic to think when it comes to change, downtowns are going to have to be pandemic-proof, right? And they're going to have to be more resilient so that uh, people can be safe when they're downtown and that uh, the downtown can still function and kind of uh, perform all the stuff that it needs to do in terms of keeping businesses open and keeping the economy chugging along.
You know, everybody wonders what life is going to be like going, coming out the other end of this, you know, whether it's the barn doors opening up and we all run into the field of daisies or whether it's a slow, gradual thing, which is probably uh, most likely. Many are wondering what life's going to be like, what uh, travel's going to be like, what uh, industry, businesses is going to be like. But what about our attitudes? How are we going to be different? As, as you monitored this over the course of the year, what do you think change, what, what do you think has changed within Canadians' minds through all of this? Anything? You know, Stand out. One of the more interesting surveys that we did is uh, we asked Canadians what the biggest impact uh, was of the pandemic, and what was what was striking was that it was stuff like uh, greater appreciation for the people that I love. Maybe I don't yeah. need to acquire have as many possessions as I did, and uh, I'm going to be appreciating things. So you know the thing is, is once you lose your freedom, once you can't interact with your family, your loved ones, your friends, your mom, dad. Um, you start to have a, a greater appreciation, and I think uh, I think you know that that kind of pent up feeling over the last year. I think as soon as we get to the spring, assuming that the vaccinations start to roll out, I think people will not just be comfortable in terms of coming back to work and coming back downtown. They're going to uh, they're going to welcome it, but they're still going to want to make sure that people respect the public health authorities' guidance, that they social distance, that people wear masks in order to make sure that not only do we manage the pandemic, but that we beat it. I can't let you go, Nick, without your thoughts. Uh, lots of rumors buzzing around about an election, that the, the Prime Minister is looking for that optimum sweet spot in, in order to call it. Uh, what are you seeing from where you are? And you know, many are, are thinking about a, a spring election once all the mass vaccinations uh, arrive. Will that be enough for people to forget about where we are now or have been since January? I don't think so. And we'll have to get our coin to start flipping coins to figure out whether there'll be an election now. Mm. The one thing that I do know is there's probably not a politician that wants to be responsible for triggering an election. The Liberals might want one, but I don't think they want to be responsible for having one just in case it goes sideways. Good point. Nick Nanos has been with us, uh, of course, head of Nanos Research. As always, Nick, thanks uh, so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Bye-bye. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes, uh, listening to lots of news conferences today, including all of the premiers uh, who were meeting, and uh, certainly most of them anyway, and asking the federal government for more trans- uh, transfer payments. Hard to believe that in the, uh, back in the, what, 70s, it used to, it used to be a 50-50 split. The health care costs were covered between the feds and the provinces. It's now 78% paid by the province, 22 two percent uh now uh paid by the federal government and obviously uh the provinces want that change an interesting note from barb and she says trudeau must be seething i don't know how he can unveil a climate change budget after this call for health care funding by the provinces he will appear absolutely tone deaf which he is she says uh if they uh if the uh the feds don't pick up on this because there's a reason that they are all lining up today and holding this news conference it's because the premier is chomping at the bit sorry the prime minister is chomping at the bit to call an election he wants to use his uh reasonably favorable numbers from uh covid-19 although that's in question right now as we lack supply of vaccine and watching the rest of the world uh, do so but he wants to uh hold a snap election try to get his majority uh in the sweet spot of this covid-19 whenever that is so it'll be fascinating to see uh how this all pans out uh obviously
obviously uh, the Prime Minister using this as a reason to uh, push his climate change ad- agenda, using uh, the Biden line, build back, build back better, uh, and, and using this as a time to pivot into, um, into uh, renewable energy and such, as if we haven't already sort of been doing that. Um, but it's going to be fascinating because is that the focus of the Canadian people or is it exactly what the premiers were saying? And that is health care. Uh, and again, health care, jobs in the economy, education, your kids. Those are always the top uh, few uh, polling uh, uh, factors uh, in an election. And obviously, for the last several years, uh, the prime minister hanging his hat on more fashionable uh, social issues such as climate change and, and such, uh, where that may have pivoted now with uh, the Canadian population as health care is obviously the number one priority. All right, let's take uh, this time, as we always do, to uh, talk about various businesses or hospitality uh, that has been hit during a COVID-19. And some are using this as an opportunity to expand or renovate. Uh, and White Spot Hospitality, uh, one of those organizations. Let's bring in Warren Earhart, president of White Spot Hospitality and Triple O's, and is with us now. Warren, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, uh, thanks very much, Scott. Yeah, doing well. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. And yeah, we're quite excited about uh, a new opportunity in Ontario. Why is this a good time to be expanding? I mean, a lot of uh, restaurants are certainly feeling the pinch. Uh, why is this? And we certainly have heard of this and other companies uh, who are uh, renovating or such. Why is this a good opportunity? Well, you know, it's interesting because this has been in the, the works for uh, a long period of time, well before uh, anybody predicted a, a pandemic to happen. And, and, and so for us, we were... Like I said, we were, we were planning this for quite a while. We had actually had restaurants that we've opened in other provinces, al- along with uh, actually in Asia as well. So we do have uh, restaurants in Hong Kong and, and throughout British Columbia and Alberta. And as I mentioned, we were, we were planning this for a while, and then, of course, the pandemic comes up. And, and uh, for us, we're just, as I say, moving forward, forward into the Ontario market. Tell us about White Spot Hospitality. Sure, we're we're um, uh, a group of two different um, uh, chains within White Spot, two different uh, types of restaurants. We've got our White Spot full service family casual style restaurants, of which we've got sixty in British Columbia and Alberta. Yeah, these uh, are huge out west. Aren't these are huge out west? Aren't they, Warren? Yeah, they're uh, it's a, it's a strong regional chain uh, started by Nat Bailey in 1928. So we often say that we're Canada's oldest uh, restaurant chain. Uh, on, the, on the west coast here, and then Triple O's, which is our our quick service or our um, uh, restaurant chain, which is Burgers, Fries, and Shakes, and we started that in 1997 um, in the in the BC market. So, what is coming to Hamilton? Yeah, so what we've done is we've opened our first location uh, uh, on Wednesday in um, in Mississauga on Courtney Parkway. Uh, within a within an Ultramar station, so it's a uh, we've got partners with Chevron in British Columbia. We've done the same with Park and Petroleum, who have, uh, have many stations in in Ontario with Pioneer and Ultramar and some of the stations as well. Um, and so we've opened up as a a, um, a burger, fries, and shakes, one of our triple O's in our first uh, station. There we are looking in Hamilton as one of the markets. We've actually identified six restaurants over the next uh, year that we'll have open in uh, sort of the GTA area for us, but also includes parts of Hamilton. We're looking on Rymel Road and a few other locations as well for opportunities in the Hamilton area as well. 
You know, Scott, the the industry has been been hard hit, obviously, and and uh, from the the, uh, the ad was played by Restaurants Canada just prior to your your last announcement, and and um, the industry has been really difficult hit, but we've all it's been something quite different as as full service restaurants and in 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 restaurant dining has been impacted. Um, there's been a lot of comfort for people sometimes just to drive through and, and have a a burger experience on a drive-through or third-party delivery, and and looking at obviously very safe ways that people can try our products um, uh, to to uh, to have some type of an experience as well. So uh, it hasn't all it hasn't impacted all areas of the industry the same. Obviously, some have been more hit than harder than others. Um, and one of the things that with the triple O's and having the opportunity of looking at ways of using our brand or having, whether it's a mobile app or, or, um, or a drive-through or, or skip the dishes and DoorDash, some of the third-party delivery companies as well, um, looking for opportunities that way as well. So are you talking about with this situation moving in with other, uh, you, you know, other businesses or is the, are these standalone? Both. We have both standalone locations. And if you came to British Columbia, you would see Triple O's in Science World or Rogers Arena where the Canucks play hockey or, or, or Chevron gas stations or standalone uh, storefronts, as we call them, or drive-throughs throughout as well. So uh, a lot of various different ways uh, we have triple O's in British Columbia. We see the same thing in Ontario. We can see opportunities both with our partners at uh, – um, with uh, Parkland Petroleum, which is Pioneer and Ultramar, but also standalone locations as well. We're certainly hearing more and more about food sales uh, at gas station locations and that expanding. Is that That's obviously uh, an expanding niche market. Well, you know, it's interesting, Scott. You know, gas stations have always had the best real estate as far as locations <laughs> go. And yeah. so it would just make sense as they look at their that their model and, and uh, as I said, they are you know very comfortable working with them. So their model is great real estate with great locations uh, and make it easier for the for the consumer, easier for the guests. So I know there's a lot of brands that are looking at that and and as an opportunity um, uh, for the for the consumer, it makes things a lot easier to you know to to uh, pick up some a meal at a at a, um, a drive-through opportunity and we perhaps get some gas as well while you're there. Warren Earhart has been with us, president of White Spot Hospitality and Triple O's, uh, expanding in the hospitality business during a pandemic as uh, this Western chain slowly moves east and uh, coming soon to the hammer. Warren, thanks for the time. Be well. Good luck with this. Well, thanks very much, Scott. The best to you as well. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.